Welcome to the Modern Mythos Podcast. of the Modern Mythos podcast. So first, for some brief updates, I've created some new music for the intro. We'll see if it sticks. I haven't done a podcast in close to a year. I've been hard at work on music, and I released a short EP and an album in that time, for which I have some great announcements coming. But today, I'm sharing a podcast I did with Sam Vallon, who is the architect of a band called Caligula's Horse. I'm sure some people in my audience are familiar with Caligula's Horse. If not, Caligula's Horse is a progressive rock band from Australia that formed around a decade ago. In addition to several albums, the band has toured the world purveying their brand of what I would say is optimistic, forward-thinking, progressive music. As you can hear, I was very excited to talk to Sam. This really was a meeting of the minds in some ways. And in addition to his work on the art itself, Sam is clearly someone who thinks deeply about art in all its forms. And so, I bring you Sam Vallon. I am here with Sam Vallon. Uh, Sam, it's great to see you today. Um, I wanted to let you know real quick that I was just looking on the Spotify channel for Caligula's Horse, and we got something like a million two hundred thousand streams on Songs for No One. I don't want that to inflate your ego, though, because about <laughs> half of those are me. Um, before I even get no started on this whole conversation, I am just wondering, while I have you cornered, if you could tell us anything about that song. Yeah, I, I can tell you a lot of little bits of trivia about it. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is that not only was it the last song that we wrote for In Contact, but it was written over the course of like maybe two weeks, <laughs> a little more than that. It was, it, it's crazy. We're, we're sort of known um, as a band that you know, spends a long time on, on, on little things. The details really matter to us. But that was really a song where as soon as it started flowing, it kind of just happened. I remember the night that we started playing with the ideas, um, Jim kind of came up with this, this, this the, the, kind of the central theme of the song being this kind of optimistic explosion of positive energy for this, this character um, in the, you know, within, the con- within the concept of that chapter of In Contact, kind of expressing himself. Um, I, I mean, I can dig into what the concept is if, 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 if you like, but it, it was one of these ones that I think the moment we opened the door at all to kind of the idea, the music and the way that they interacted, you know, one to the other, it was just like the floodgates opening and the song kind of came out. So it, I, I'm not going to say it was the quickest we've ever written something, but it's certainly up there, you know? I mean, that's a bit of trivia, I guess. I could go into other stuff. Too. Uh, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit? Because there is this one, I knew that there was a positivity thing going on there. There's this one lyric. It's something like... Um, to disconnect from the shadow, I must leave the ground. Mm. Um, maybe that, that really struck me as something about almost uh, having a Eastern flair to it, almost kind of mm. this um, awareness about 
what you need to do to get out of your own skin or to rise or, you know, you could tell me what that lyric is yeah, about. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, first of all, it's, I guess it's important to look at it as kind of one, one quarter of In Contact. Like it's a concept album that tells the story of four different individuals and the, the, the shared quality between all of them is that they're, they're artists in some way or another. Um, so in, in the first chapter, this is the chapter that encompasses Dream the Dead, Will Song, Hands of the Hardest and Love Conquers All. It's about um, essentially uh, like, a, like, a, like a musical artist of some kind who is also uh, an alcoholic and has kind of found solace in silence, basically, but feels the pull of a clamoring crowd kind of demanding, you know, this artist come back and re-engage with what it was that he found his fame doing. Um, it's kind of... In that case, we were really interested in this idea of the um, the trope of the tortured artist. You know, it's like if you're not suffering for your art, it's meaningless, which is something that we absolutely abhor. You know, it's a disgusting concept that really is very publicly um, kind of acknowledged as almost necessary for rock music. Um, the second chapter, so this is the one uh, I see. I see that resonates with you. Uh, we, maybe we can talk about that. The second we're, we're chapter, going, which we're is obviously to. the chapter that's um, going to. Yeah, nice. That Capulet and Songs for No One come, comes from is um, kind of different. It's it's the story of um, really the art in this case matters less than kind of the conflict that this 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 figure feels. So it's it's this kind of court artisan of some kind who um, is you know outwardly a kind of like a celebrity, but is um, secretly uh, both a homosexual and kind of in love with um, their patron. This is kind of set historically, you know, at some point where that would be a little bit of a dangerous situation to be in. So, you know, we, we kind of used it as a, as, a, as a lovely kind of metaphorical exploration of both the, the private, uh, you know, the inner and the outer life. And a big part of Songs for No One, as I was saying, was it's kind of this explosion of like, this is genuinely, this is who I am. This is, this is what matters to me, even if it's um, perhaps the, 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 the locus, locus for some um, dangerous, uh, dangerous situations. Um, part three is about a kind of, I, I guess, like a street artist of some kind who is... Is this where that third um, guitar solo comes in? Or that second guitar solo comes in? Oh, no, no. So th this, this, this would be the next chapter in the, okay. in the record. So um, encompassing Fill My Heart, Cannon's Mouth, and, um, and Inertia, uh, which is kind of telling the story of like a like a like a you know this this character's brother had died he sees the city that he lives in kind of that his brother fell victim to in in, in one way or another um as something that he is increasingly alienated from but then at the same time um kind of a part of you know it's okay. inescapable it's kind of a part of him as well um and then of course the final chapter is just the song graves which is about a, a sculptor who kind of wrestles with two things one being um, having a child and, you know, kind of coming to terms with that. And the other being this horrible jealousy that he feels for a rival, whether it's, you know, real or perceived, that uh, the two kind of intertwine throughout his life, creating tension at different points. So, I mean, like, you know, you know talking about Songs for No One and talking about the chapter that Songs for No One sits on, um, the chapter is called The Caretaker. Um, it's the shortest chapter on the album. It's the chapter that probably, like, in a narrative sense is kind of maybe the simplest um, but songs for no one was really, like I said, it just, it just, it just came out the moment that we put those ideas kind of to paper, we started developing kind of the musical concepts and the themes behind it. And I think it was just something that we clearly, you know, needed to write. It was very interesting to us to kind of dig into that world as well as it being something that, you know, always feels reasonably timely as well. 
to explore the year Excellent. in the other life. Okay. You know? So one before I get into the tortured artist trope because we need to yes. do that. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, excited that one, right? to talk about that for a second. But yeah. um, you mentioned that this came together quite quickly. Is this you and mm. Jim in the room, or is this you and Jim and Adrian, or what? What? Tell, what is the chapter of the band in at that point? Um, yeah. So I mean, th- when it comes to writing, it's kind of almost entirely Jim and I, at least in terms of the 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 historical way the band has approached things. Like the the band was, I mean, just for a brief kind of history foray, just to contextualize this a little bit. I mean, the band for the longest time. Um, was kind of just 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 my solo project. Uh, I got Jim on as kind of like a, a basically intended in the first place to be a guest, but we really had a great time writing together, and eventually it kind of morphed by around 2013, by by about River's End, um, into something that was you know something that kind of made sense as like an entity rather than just my brainchild, I suppose. Um, and since then, you know, that's remained kind of the heart of the band. Um, but we've written with a lot of other collaborators as time goes on, Adrian obviously included. Um, but in the case of Songs for No One, actually in the case of, I, I believe, the whole of Rivers End, uh, sorry, the whole of In Contact, and I hope I'm not making a mistake here, but I, I think that's actually the entire album was just written by only Jim and I. Um, Rise Radian, of course, had a couple of other co-writes. Adrian co-wrote Salt with us and... Josh co-wrote Ocean Rise with us and Dale co-wrote um, The Tempest. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, it kind of, I guess, revolves around our writing. Okay, great. Um, so let's go to the tortured art- artist trope for a second. <laughs> here, because this is something that as my artist career has continued, I've noticed more and more. And I, the way it manifests itself is actually way more... Um, seditious almost to Mm. the nature of art then you can actually really wrap your mind around by just thinking about it because what it kind of implies is that there is this locus between like ability to be in touch with like this underlying ethos of art and your suffering and Mm. part of it is true in the sense that like suffering gives humans lots of inspiration Um, But suffering also provides humans with the opportunity to kind of distill emotional content and put it into things that are more useful. Um, I find that this thing is particularly toxic around drugs and alcohol. And I had Mm. this really funny experience about a decade ago. I went to, um, it was a Paul Gilbert show. And Paul Mm. was talking to everyone after. And this was when I was in like a really just loopy kind of not doing anything with my life, playing guitar, but, you know, I was drinking and stuff. And I asked him about drinking and drugs and he was like, don't do any of that. And I was like, wait, what? And uh, that kind of turned the uh, switch on for me a little bit more into kind of discovering what a better work ethic could do for me and what a more positive outlook could do for me. Can you talk maybe about your own journey through that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, it, it's funny, like the, the, the Paul Gilbert anecdote kind of reminds you that you almost just need to have some kind of permission to know that you don't have to, you know, be that kind of, I guess you don't just have to live a kind of sex, drugs, rock and roll kind of lifestyle in order to become inspired. But I mean, for me, it's more that, um, and we've seen this, you know, as as Caligula's Horse kind of found, you know, a greater degree of um I guess, like uh, notoriety, you know, um, the bigger we, we got, the more pressure we felt behind every record. 
Now, no one in the band is necessarily, uh, you know, we, we, we don't struggle with drugs or alcohol or whatever. We've all kind of come from generations where, you know, we, we've, we've seen that from the previous generation, let's say, you know, like parental figures and things like that. Um, and I know me personally, I, I really didn't want to be part of that from my own experience there, I suppose. But we also see, you know, friends and, uh, and, and, and associates and, um, you know, people we become familiar with in the scene kind of taking the opposite route in a lot of, in a lot of cases, realizing that in, 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 in most situations, it's like there is this obligatory sense that without this, rock music doesn't exist. You know, the two are kind of inextricably linked. Um, for me, it's, it's like the pressure of creating music is, 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 is pressure enough, I suppose. Like it's, it, it's, it's difficult sometimes to plug into the kind of creative side. And if you need some external stimulant to kind of be able to do that, you're really walking a tightrope between those two, you know, it's like a, like a tension between um, the kind of salvation that you find through the torture. Um, I, I, I'm not sure exactly how to disentangle the two, but I, I, I think for me personally, it's probably one of the scariest tropes to see in action because, as I said, it seems like a lot of people just assume it's the case, whether they kind of critically appraise it or not, that, you know, rock is this kind of outcome of the excesses <laughs> of the past, I suppose. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, if anything, it's one of these things that the more we have, the more we've delved into it as like a like a thematical component of music and by the way we've, we've definitely revisited this concept outside of just the first chapter of river's end uh, sorry first chapter of in contact um the more we've dug into it the more we're fairly convinced that it's about as insidious a concept as exists in rock at least as far as i can see i um, I, I totally agree with that man and uh i think uh, insidious is right um i i also notice it's interesting the name of the band Caligula's Horse. Now let me tell. Mm. Let me ask you if I have this right. Um, Caligula is an emperor, I think, about I don't know a long time ago, but a tyrannical one and a mm. very um, indulgent one. And he makes his horse consul, does he not? And is that yeah? What the so name this of the is so. From? Well, there's, there's I, this element to this. Let me let me finish yeah, the thought. Sorry. Let me let me finish the thought right here. So Go for it. I'm I'm very fascinated by the historical concept of decay, and specifically this idea that hard times kind of create tough people, and that tough people create good times. That good times then in turn kind of produce weaker people, and that weaker people kind of produce bad times. And it seems to me that making it as an artist actually requires a certain tolerance for tough times. Um, that would be greatly reinforced by having a tougher psychology around this stuff. So, yeah, you let's talk about Caligula's horse, the name first, and then see. Let's see mm. if we can bring it into that kind of concept. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, yeah, I mean, the thing about Caligula, like as a as a historical figure, is a lot. A lot of the stories surrounding him are probably apocryphal, at least to some degree. Um, there's not really much in the way of kind of firsthand histories um, of 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 that. You know, the kind of first era of the Roman Emperor, uh, Roman Empire. Um, but the stories themselves are interesting enough that, um, you know, the, 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 the idea of kind of making your horse a consul, um, waging war on Neptune, firing arrows into the sea. There's all of these hilarious kind of stories about Caligula, many, many again, of which are probably not true at all. Um, a lot of it actually seems to be kind of propaganda, um, you know, like the immediate 
successors to his very, very short reign, um, probably wanted to kind of wipe his name somewhat from the history books or at least, you know, besmirch it, I suppose. Um, but for us, we, we, this is Jim and I again, you know, both of us are kind of Roman history buffs, especially. Um, and it's just one of those stories that apocryphal or not is just interesting enough and kind of provocative enough and thought provoking enough um, that, you know, we thought it would be a funny name for a band as early 20 year old kids that we were. Um, but it's, it's funny because it's got kind of some, some, uh, I guess like vernacular use, like the term Caligula's horse is sometimes used as like a term to describe a fake or a fraud you know, like a Caligula's horse. And I think that's kind of interesting as well, especially when you, when you kind of dig into, you know, what progressive rock and progressive metal tend to mean to a lot of people. There's kind of a bit of an irony, I guess, I guess there. Farcical. Um, but anyway, that, farcical that, that's it. Almost. There's really not much, sorry? No, a farcical almost. Like, farcical, like, like, yeah, yeah, totally, totally. So yeah, there's really not much more kind of significance to it than that um, as far as we're concerned. But that's kind of the meaning and that's where it came from anyway. Um, but in terms of de decay, I, I, I actually love that as a concept, like a, like a kind of cyclical idea of, you know, um, well, I guess like a self-repeating version of history, right? Like a, almost this kind of dialectical version. One side starts pushing far up against the other side and eventually um, kind of overlaps and takes over with its own interests in mind. Um, I certainly see a parallel you could draw there between um, the way that we kind of approach writing music as well, you know. It's, for example, we kind of have this habit that we've really only recently discovered of moving between these large scale concept albums and then things that are much shorter and much kind of simpler. Um, again, there's obviously kind of this dialectical thing at play here, you know, like one of these becomes far too extreme and eventually becomes kind of um, intersected with its other. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious. So what's, what's your experience of, of Decay as a musical artist? How do, you, how do you kind of contextualize that within a career? Well, for me, I think there, there's been a couple things. One, I've noticed artists that I really, really like. Um, I noticed that a lot of the time I like the th first three or four albums they made and then something happens afterwards that I can't quite put my finger on. That's how it was about 10 years ago before I had a band. My my music and my output is new. I think my first song came out in 2018. Um, but what I started noticing, especially from reading history, was that um, just indulging too much, not even in just like drugs or sex or anything, but just like a psychological comportion that was based on kind of just uh, relaxing was never gonna be what I needed for my music. I needed strife. And I needed a kind of inspiration from ganglier elements and I needed kind of bad trips and like bad, you know, things that really balanced uh, stuff out. And what I noticed is, um, you know, at some point, I think we all go through it. I'm sure you went through it. There was one point where I was playing 12 hours a day. I wanted nothing more than to be the absolute best guitarist I could possibly be. And I've tried to maintain that as much as I can today. You know, I'm going to spend more time recording and I play piano a lot now too. Um, but I think just the maintenance of the discipline is kind of what's important there. And I think that if I could look 20 years into the future and be the happiest with myself, it would be via the work and the effort that I'd be putting in and not really any measure of material success. And I'm sure you talk to people about this all the time. People probably ask you what your goal is or people mm. assume or insinuate that you have a certain or specific goal. When you first got into music, um, you wanted, I, I'm going to guess you wanted to make the best possible music you wanted to make. 
you know, that was your goal. And I, mm. it seems like it's still your goal because I heard the most recent record, man, and I think it's probably the best to date. Um, Thank you. You know, I that is kind of my ideal vision of myself through the years. Mm, this, okay, so there's, there's, there's an amazing parallel that I just want to kind of briefly draw there that you're probably, probably really aware of anyway. You know, talking about this trope of the tortured artist. There's another trope that's really common to like, I guess, the way we kind of construct rock music. And it's the idea of like rock as a kind of youth music, right? Like you, you think about, you know, your famous artists getting, your, your favorite famous artists getting old and just kind of losing it, you know, scare quotes, like quotation mark it. Um, and I, I, I feel like, especially, you know, coming into kind of like my mid thirties now, like, you know, I've been in this kind of music career um, forged around Caligula's horse now for, um, well, you know, 10 years, really. I mean, a little over that now. Um, there's this interesting sense, you know, like obviously when, when I was a late teenager, early 20 year old, and I was kind of just writing the earliest parts of this, there was this kind of sense that like, if I'm going to make an album and it's not the greatest album that's ever made, uh, ever been made, I've failed. You know what I mean? Like that kind of youthful just like obsessive kind of like I, you know vigor like it it's the kind of thing that used to absolutely animate me and then as you form a career around that stuff and of course you immediately cringe at anything you've made in the past I mean I know I certainly do but it stops being about that and it starts being at least in my experience more about kind of exploring the moment and the psychology of you know your your, your current position in the world your current sense of your career you know who you are which obviously over the course of a decade changes drastically so it, you know it's funny talking about that like you know obsessively practicing guitar i absolutely did the same the same thing at that same kind of age and you know obsessively entering into the musical scene as this person who has to absolutely nail it the first instance and it's got to be perfect and whatever else and now i look at it as someone who's probably a little you know calmer and more even-headed as like i'm really just trying to kind of reflect something currently that means something to me um it's probably worth you know whether we can kind of segue to it talking about what that means for you know the 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 newest material that we're working on where that sits in a kind of post-covid world where all of our mindsets have really changed and we've all been somewhat beaten down by this time i'm sure you're exactly the same but you know it's interesting like that only through the way you described kind of your career intersecting with it. I, I see that as a really interesting sense of kind of like expanding and contracting decay, right? Like maybe it goes from this absolute explosive moment to this much quieter, more thoughtful um, approach to the same thing. And of course, being, you know, however old we were when we made Rise of Radiant, early 30s, whatever, um, it's funny to think of it as no longer like, uh, you know, we're, we're heading into the age group where historically, a lot of artists have been looked at as well past their prime. You know, you think about all of those classic like Led Zeppelin records as an example. They're all teenagers and early 20-year-olds writing that stuff. You know, I think one of the weird benchmarks for me is Steve Vai's Passion and Warfare, which he made when he was 30. You know what I mean? And that was like this kind of career-defining record. I'm past 30 now, you know? So there's all of these interesting kind of elements. I actually find it almost as, almost as, fascinated, uh, almost as fascinating as the, you know, kind of tortured artist trope, this idea of like rock and getting older, I guess is how you could title it. Um, but hopefully that kind of ties somewhat to that. I, mean, I know it's a little bit of a ramble, but there's a couple of really interesting connected themes there that I thought were, were, were just fascinating. No, it, there, there definitely are a bunch. I, I think to one of the things you said 
you know, I think we both have this kind of luxury of looking back at that era now and sort of thinking like, yeah, I'm really thinking things out a little bit more now. But really what we're expressing is that we put our 10,000 hours in in a number of ways and that we don't have to think so much about a lot of the things that we take a lot of this for granted, you know, because the time was put in and the effort was put in. But you're pointing out something important, which is that it, it leads to more thoughtful songwriting. Which makes mm. me suspect that this thing about being a teenager and writing a better song is probably arbitrary. And I know that there are plenty of albums by plenty of artists. I would say Stephen Wilson is one of them, um, mm. where um, yeah. it seemingly as time goes on, the writing becomes better and better. And certainly in the guitar world even, where you would expect after a certain age there to be a drop-off. I noticed with guys like Guthrie Govan, there's a guy who just seemingly keeps getting better. I swear some of the notes he plays don't exist. And, yeah, uh, it's, it's disgusting how good a guitarist can be, isn't it? And uh, <laughs> so that, well, let me ask you about one more trope because I know it's a big yeah. deal where you come from and it's only in the last year or two have I heard about this thing and I think it's a big cultural difference between where I live in the United States and where you live in Australia. Mm. Here we really yeah. like very um, explosive, wealthy, show-offy types and I've been made aware of a term in your culture called the tall poppy syndrome. Yeah. And I'm sure you're very aware of this tall poppy syndrome for listeners who don't know what this means. This is kind of like tell me if I get this right because this is this is your lore, not mine. Sure. But um it's kind of this concept where uh the tall poppy gets cut down uh, is the metaphor. Um that you know, maybe you could think of it as the larger, more fertile plant being cut and eaten. Um and it's this idea that the better you get at something or the more show-offy you become or even just the more competent you are, the more likely you are to attract the kind of negative energy that will get you chopped down. Can you talk about it mm. a little? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, when I think of the kind of tall poppy syndrome trope, I, I, I think of it as something that we kind of inherited from, you know, like I, I guess the kind of British lineage that you know Australia has. Um, there's this kind of sense of like not rising above one station that we we very much borrowed from the Brits. But I think the way that we express it as Australians, and it's funny, I've actually done a bit of academic writing on exactly this as it relates to metal. But we we as Australians have this, uh, we, we call it um, kind of like larrikinism is generally like the the trope, this concept of kind of, you know, jocular kind of performative, um, very, very male um, kind of humor which is usually right. at someone's expense the idea is as soon as somebody rises above their station their their mates are there to bring them back down again you know so um it, it's certainly something that we're all kind of aware of but i i see the difference at least in a um kind of music performance senses you know when i look at like say like american active rock and stuff like that or even like kind of the lingering kind of new metal type stuff that is still really big on like active rock college radio stuff like that you know everyone's wearing their leather jackets and they're all super like done up hair it's all very you know all very um kind of thought out and you know like very, very i guess very image based um australia i'm not saying that doesn't exist but certainly we we have a pretty high I guess, like tolerance to something being kind of full of pretense or, or you know, even, even a little bit fake, it immediately kind of goes off on the fakeometer of every Australian's mind because of that cultural element, because of that tall poppy syndrome or that kind of larrikinish take on it. So as a result, like a lot of our music, um, maybe the music isn't particularly different, but certainly like the presentation of it tends to be a little bit more understated. Um, 
we've noticed as a touring band, whether we're talking about like, you know, wherever we play in the world, um, we've kind of got this running thing and and it's something that we've rallied around more and more as we've played more outside of Australia and we've realized that it's actually quite unique, even if we're used to it, where Jim kind of just addresses the crowd, um, almost, uh, kind of like, like droll, like understated kind of jokes, a lot of heckling from the crowd, like kind of back and forth, the kind of thing that really breaks that, like, you know, that, that, that fourth wall concept of like band performing to audience. Um, and I think that's a distinct outcome of exactly that, you know, that, that Commonwealth or British trope of, um, of, you know, the tall poppy getting chopped down. Um, but it is really interesting. I mean, I wonder how much it actually infuses our music. I can certainly see it like in that example, in the kind of paramusical stuff, like everything that surrounds our music performance. Um, but I think our music is still reasonably showy, although I've got to say, as I think about it right now, we do have a little bit of a kind of an aversion and an aversion to things being you know, showy for showy's sake. I mean, that's something that's probably worth talking about as well. Our music tends to be reasonably understated, three guitar solos per song notwithstanding. Because it's interesting. Yeah. Um, I've noticed you have, um, sometimes you play a very short guitar solo. Mm. I've noticed you sure. play like a two or three, you know, especially like, and, and they're actually really great. Like, I really like that. You say a lot very quickly. Is this at all related? Maybe it is. I, so, so for my mind, and here's the thing, like, as you, as you point this out, I'm definitely kind of seeing more and more that this may have a very like deep kind of yeah. like relation to, <laughs> to my thinking here. But I mean, my, my conscious thinking about the short guitar solo things, it's actually very, very deliberate. Now it's worth saying there are certainly some very long, very excessive guitar solos as well throughout the catalog. But yeah, for the most part, I, I kind of see it in a compositional sense as something that um, it serves a very particular role in that like eight or 16 bar kind of spot if we're talking about a short guitar solo. So usually it's in a song that we're trying intentionally to keep the running length a little shorter. We're obviously not doing that for any kind of, um, you know, radio play pretense. We're never going to get that anyway. So it's not really a concern. It's more to say like, how much can we say in a short and very concise and very kind of you know, punchy message? Um, so a guitar solo in that case, as far as I'm concerned, is just something that needs to maintain interest just long enough. And my assumption, um, maybe this is tall poppy as I say this, my assumption is that at some point, maybe over the course of 16 bars, the guitar's kind of novelty has run its course a little bit, you know? That's not to say that, like, I don't want to hear a long guitar solo and a lot of our fans don't. I mean, again, this is why there occasionally are longer guitar solos. But it's like, if I want to keep something really, really exciting, I want the song to be kind of a roller coaster from start to finish, you know? It's like, it's thematically linked. Every section goes to the next in some kind of interesting and exciting way. Then if the guitar solo is really long, I'm really kind of, I'm really... Um, expecting a lot of the audience to kind of follow me there so for the most part and i reckon this is probably i don't know maybe maybe 20 percent of the time i don't do this but for the majority of it yeah i try and keep a solo as short and um exclamatory as possible right it's like you should get to the end of it and be like yeah damn that's just enough or maybe not quite enough and now we go into the next section okay. um i want it to feel like a you know a constantly um a constantly exciting you know, shift throughout the song, hence it being somewhat short, at, at least as a general approach. Concision is is important, and so is I totally. Mean, there's it's it's interesting how an economy of words, 
even when you're just speaking, can communicate something that is maybe has some meta information that wasn't even in just mm. what you said. Um, I love uh, people who are really good, sparse, concise communicators who can mm. deliver that one-liner kind of thing. Um, for, for what it's worth, I mean, that's more or less like the vision that, that we tend to have for most of our songwriting. I mean, like, if you think about the tropes of progressive rock or progressive metal, there's this kind of assumption that everything should be protracted, right? And it should be um, long enough that it feels exploratory. But the problem is there's this line between exploratory and just entirely kind of random and rambling, right? Sure. So that, that idea of like the writing being kind of concise is like one of its fundamental qualities. I, I like to look at it the other way. It's like if you've got this very um, kind of enclosed format in which you can fit something, maybe you're trying to make a song under six minutes. I mean, that's probably, you know, some people probably laugh at the idea of that. I mean, progressive metal is probably a shortish song. But let's say that's your limitation. It's like how great a journey can you be taken on in that kind of space, you know? Could you have something that's as emotionally compelling as a 15-minute song in a four, in, you know, in a four-minute running time? Um, and I'm not really sure what the answer to that is, but I mean, it's something that we find a lot of inspiration in as, as a concept anyway. My guitar solos are obviously some, some, something of an outcrop of that anyway, you know what I mean? But uh, yeah, concision, very, very important to us for sure. Okay, great. Um, that's that was um, that was exactly uh, what I wanted you to explore there. So I'm great. I'm I'm happy you uh, did. Um, let me ask you a little bit going back. I have a couple of things I want to get to here, but I want to ask what role has sort of since we already kind of talked about this, but I want to flesh it out a little bit more. What role does sort of toughness and dedication play in success and you know, what positive character traits, if any, do you feel maybe you've developed in your process of becoming a better artist? Hmm. It's a, it's a, it's a really interesting thought because we've always had this sense that, um, and I remember this from the very beginnings of Caligula's Horse, like, you know, kind of like late 2010, the, the, the saying that we would kind of repeat to one another in different forms was always something like, if we're going to do this, if we're going to start another band, I mean, you know, it was like being a teenager, right? If we're going to start another band, we're going to do this for real. And I remember at the time, we didn't really know exactly what that would require or just how you know difficult a lot of the steps that you follow to find any degree of success in this music scene would be. And I mean, I can certainly dig into some of those. But you see, I'm fortunate that I, I've, I've always been a very studious person. I mean, it's the reason that I did a doctorate it's not because i wanted a doctorate it's because i you know it was something that really excited me to dig into a project that hard and that's always been a quality that i think has kind of founded a lot of what we do in caligula's horse it's like if we're going to explore a concept or we're going to explore you know a musical theme or an idea we're going to try every single variation or you know kind of uh, version of of that that we can possibly conceive of until we find the best thing and i think that quality is something that a lot of people I think a lot of people, especially when I, you know, when I, when I, when I work as a producer for different bands and things like that, a lot of people are kind of not aware necessarily exists. Like this idea that your, your first inspiration, you know, the thing that just comes out when you're not really thinking that kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Like, like purely kind of just um, instinctual musical response is often not the best one. And it takes a lot of, you know, digging and throwing things away and taking them apart um, and being analytical about it, like saying, you know, what is it that 
drew me to this idea? Why did my intuition take me here as opposed to somewhere else? I think that kind of studiousness is something that's really, you know, helped us a lot. I, I say that as a quality I have, but it's certainly something that we we kind of have all grown to have in the band as well. Um, but I mean, in, in addition to that, I mean, that, that's one, that's one angle to, to look at, right? This idea that if you're kind of exploring your music, you're doing it with this very critical mindset at all times to make sure that all of the value that you possibly have out of those ideas that your intuition just feeds you. That, by the way, to me is still something of a mystery. But once you've got those ideas, what do you do with them, right? The other angle, though, is just kind of being able to weather some real shit, you know. Um, certainly, I have memories of the first European tour that we did in 2015. Um, this was on the back of Bloom. We did some pretty extensive touring, like right after the album came out. We just, you know, got signed by Inside Out and all of that stuff kind of happened for us all in one big chunk. And I remember we got back from that tour in, you know, very late 2015. And although we didn't have Jeff and Zach leave immediately, it was basically set that, you know, that was what was going to happen. Zach just kind of couldn't deal with the touring life, like the, you know, the pressures of kind of living in the bus, not eating much, you know, um, not getting any sleep, like, you know, the, the kind of chaos that is touring um, and, and Jeff to some degree as well. So there's this kind of sense that like, you've got to be able to just accept the grind because the grind is absolutely inseparable from developing any degree of success in a kind of cult musical scene. Um, you know, this is obviously no longer the kind of circumstance where you get signed to a label and suddenly things become financially very easy or, you know, the stresses that uh, we all kind of feel as artists suddenly disappear and we can focus only on the music or only on the performance or whatever else. Um, so, I mean, we, I remember actually having this band meeting. It would have been, you know, probably the first quarter of the following year um, as you know, members were changing in the band, which was something along the lines of, can we handle doing this? Like, is this something that everyone is actually on the level with? Are we all comfortable with the fact that like, you know, that's potentially what touring is like. It's very, very hard. It's very, very expensive. Um, you make a ton of sacrifices to even make it possible. And, you know, again, I know third time I've said it, but it's like it cost us band members. Like it really was a very, very difficult thing to do. And over the years, certainly, um, it's become somewhat easier as things have become more established and we've gotten more used to the protocols and how to kind of maximize, I guess, our own place in them. Um, actually, Adrian is an absolute master with that. That's a, that's a side story, though. Um, but, you know, that, that kind of, I guess, it's, I guess it's having a really consistent and really comfortable view of why you're doing something. You know, this might be a struggle in the immediate um, kind of context but if you think about it in the future it leads to this and it leads to this and things get easier and it's all worthwhile um, there's an amazing intersection that I, I, I immediately make here um, a connection to what we've all felt over the last two years with COVID where suddenly that payoff has disappeared and it's become very very difficult to not be somewhat alienated from the music industry when you don't actually really have any concrete idea of like when you get to live the kind of outcomes of the sacrifices you put in. So I think like, you know, one of the things that we learned in 2015 and then all of our subsequent kind of like, you know, world touring, like outside of Australia is it's okay. And it can be dealt with when you've got this idea that it does lead to something, but you know, obviously the last couple of years, that's become much, much more difficult. I'm sure you've kind of felt the same, the same thing. 
Yeah, I mean, um, COVID, COVID, uh, the interesting thing about it for me was that it directly ended any live playing that I was doing. But mm. I actually wrote the most substantial music that I had ever, I, th- I think, the, the best that I had ever done as a composer during that time. So I, uh, I have kind of both views on it. Sure. Well, I mean, speaking personally, I really struggled with it. And it was not, not so much because I couldn't, um, you know, couldn't do X, I couldn't tour, couldn't, couldn't whatever else. More just because the, the, the work-life balance became almost untenable. Um, I mean, I, let, me, let me take a step back, I suppose. So, so, you know, late 2019, we're finishing the recording for Rise Radiant. And this is an album that, you know, budget-wise, it was far higher budget than we'd had in the past. Um, it was kind of, you know, hot in the heels of an album that had, had done quite well for us with In Contact. And around the kind of late recording of this, we'd basically planned a full kind of maybe 14 or 15 months ahead of touring. So we had, you know, like an almost five-week tour of the U.S. already selling tickets for the following summer, like your summer, like, you know, uh, mid-year kind of period. Um, we had, you know, some, some Japanese dates, some European dates. We obviously had like all of our Australian stuff planned. We had all of this not only kind of like planned and set, but planned and set to a degree that we really never had before in terms of like the kind of uh, the, 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 the longitude of, 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 of our organization here. Like, you know, we knew what we were doing almost a year from the date, I guess. And then of course, you know, we finish all of the recording off kind of like early 2020. God, I hope I'm not getting my dates wrong. I don't think I am. Um, early 2020. And that's when we're first kind of hearing about all of the lockdowns happening in like uh, Wuhan and stuff like that. And I remember just collectively everyone in the band almost being in denial over this, like, wow, so we've just sunk all of this money into this thing. We're finally seeing, like after, you know, almost a decade of being in a band, this genuine conversion of like all of the efforts into well-selling headline tours in places, in some cases that we've never been, um, behind an album that, you know, charted unbelievably and, you know, recouped its whole advance in a single sales period. Like it was the kind of thing where, Everything was set to work, and then COVID happened. Now I know every other artist, you know, has a has a similar tale to tell. So it's not like a woe is me story, but it really hit us to a degree that it's kind of hard to express. Um, it was like if you imagine kind of the the eight years leading up to that as you know the the struggle with that being the payoff. Suddenly that payoff was kind of taken from us in that instant, and we we definitely struggled to kind of I mean we, we were reeling from it for a couple of reasons you know one because obviously the magnitude of it was pretty great two we've got this sense in Caligula's Horse something that we've talked about a lot that you really don't know an album until you tour with an album you know you can write all of these songs and you know spend as long pre-producing them and producing them and, and learning to perform them live you know rehearsing them and so forth but until you've actually gone on the road and heard the crowd singing them back or you know got to know some of the weird minutiae of like what, what elements really elicit that response? What elements don't, you know, what does this section mean? What does this feel like? Before you do that, you don't really know the songs and we never really got to know Rise Radiant as a result. You know, it's an album that we still have this weird sense of separation from because we haven't actually got to do that with it. So this whole time we're kind of, 
struggling with like you know ex extrinsic kind of like pressures like work and you know and, you know fatherhood all of these other things that covid really changed quite significantly but then on the other hand we we've got this weird kind of i guess a kind of denial about why are we writing a new album before we've even got to know the last one you know what i mean so it's not that we it's not that we were resistant to write. It's that there was this kind of confluence of like elements that made it very, very difficult to seriously say, okay, it's the end of that chapter and it's the start of the next. Um, we've taken that step, obviously. We've been kind of working pretty hard on what will become the next record. But it really was a set of circumstances um, unlike, well, unlike anything we'd experienced and certainly unlike anything that I could have even really anticipated. If you'd asked me what a global pandemic would be like for my music career, I'd have been like, I don't know, <laughs> you know. Um, but certainly it was pretty catastrophic for us in all of those senses. Yeah, it certainly telegraphed a certain vulnerability that always mm. sort of existed in the music industry. I did an undergraduate in philosophy uh, about a decade ago. And one of the things we did in a, in a thing called biomedical ethics is uh, we talked about this. And I, it was something I had always been sort of aware of, like kind of passively in the background. Um, but just seeing how vulnerable the infrastructure of the world was to this sort of sent the message to me. And, you know, you could I don't know what this is going to be like in the long run, but I think that the infrastructure of the world has gotten hyper invested in the Internet. And uh, that actually played into civilization being less vulnerable in this case. Um, so mm. I've put a bunch of effort into building my brand on the internet and building myself on the internet because I've always sort of had this instinct and then it just really got turned into overdrive when I saw how hyper vulnerable the actual outside world is. And when you think about kind of the precariousness that goes along with the fact that most of money is non-physical, it exists in bank accounts on the internet, you kind of realize that if the internet was to go down, that really would be the end of civilization. Not lockdowns, you know? The internet is the mm. thing that really ties everything kind of together um, at this point. So, um, you know, that kind of played into maybe me thinking that I wanted to write more music and that I could invest my energy in an album phase. Um, mm. but I, I do have to ask you this because you just mentioned something about rise radiant that I want to get to the bottom of a little bit. It's kind of a segue, but mm. I yeah. have it on good authority that you're using ax effects for these guitar sounds. Is this true? Not quite. So I, I did use an ax effects for a lot of the early seahorse stuff. Um, for, Rise Radiant, a lot of it is actually neural DSP stuff. So, you know, mo mostly the plugins in that case. I tend to use mostly this guy now. There's obviously no visual medium in the podcast. Um, That's the quad. In the That's the quad cortex. Here, but, uh, quad cortex, yeah. So this has absolutely blown my mind. And I've done the last couple of, um, we recently did an Australian tour with it. I've done a couple of other shows outside of that with it. And it's really just, um, I mean, it's, it's the next generation of the stuff. You know, it gets me really excited as kind of a nerd to just dig in and see what's actually possible nowadays. But yeah, I'm more or less a kind of a modeler guy, you know, quote unquote. Um, that said, like when it comes to recordings, I like to try and borrow every piece of gear that I can get my hands on just to feel like I'm exploring a palette that might be a little bit less predictable. You know, uh, the, the, the problem as far as I'm concerned with modelers 
less than the sonics of them because i'm fairly convinced at this point that if there is a difference that difference is absolutely negated um to the most kind of tangible degree by the actual performance itself i mean if i'm playing into something and feeling comfortable if it's five percent less real than a valve amp i don't think that really matters at this point um but to me the thing that is a bit of a problem can just be that once you kind of create presets even when they're quite tweakable it's very easy to just become I guess, complacent with your approach to guitar sounds and things like that. Um, extend that out to the whole of the production as well. So I try and, you know, make sure that we've always got a bunch of other stuff at hand when it comes to production time. Um, and I always keep DI lines so I can always kind of explore reamping and different things and whatever else. But yeah, I mean, most of, most of what I do nowadays is, is with modelers. You engineered and mixed these guitar sounds? Um, so the mixing was Jens Bogren for Rise Radiant, big part of uh, probably my, my biggest production hero of all time. We were really fortunate to get him to mix the record. But yeah, I did all of the, the engineering and production. And I, I, I often mix the material as well. Wow. Okay. So you're, I mean, for neuro, as far as neural DSP should be concerned, I mean, that is amazing for them. Because uh, mm. I would say the guitar tone on, you know, I haven't given... Um, I haven't maybe given it all the uh, best studio monitor treatment listen, but I've given them the car listens, and they are very convincing guitars. Even the ones on yeah, In Contact you. are very convincing sounding. I would not have, if you had, mm. I mean, I know more about production now because I did like serious production in the last couple of years. Not I did it, but sure, I've been sure. more invested in production. And uh, I remember thinking that those guitars sounded great. Yeah, well, I mean, me, me too. This is the thing. I, I never would have been convinced in the first place if you know I wasn't able to kind of dig into these with my my nerd claws and kind of find whatever I could um, within them. See, here's the thing. I I got my first Axe FX in. Um, it must have been about 2011. Like it kind of coincided with the first Seahorse record. And I remember, you know, listening through to all of the presets and saying, "This sounds like absolute garbage." I, you know, I don't believe this. Um, and it really took me kind of digging into the, you know, the, the depths of the menus and the, you know, whatever else while doing really extensive a being, this is kind of one of the things I haven't stopped doing, by the way, like I'll, you know, pull up a guitar tone that I absolutely love in, in 2011, funnily enough, it was, it was, you know, Guthrie Govan's tone on the erotic cakes album and a couple of other things I'd, I'd grab licks and I would record myself playing them over and over again while I incrementally kind of tweak patches to try and maybe not ape them exactly, but just get to the point where I kind of understand what the differences are. Really within good the, way within the mix or just solo? So, so within the mix. So, so I'll have like a DI line just running, you know, on loop going through uh, like a reamper and stuff into my gear. So I can kind of hear it in real time as a, you know, solo AB between my reference and that track. And I, I still do that to some degree nowadays. I just love it. It's just a really, uh, in a production sense, really exciting thing to do. It's like, the 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 sheer breadth of the variables that you've got available when you're kind of you know crafting a guitar tone a lot of people probably aren't really aware of that um for me the obsession lately has been the perfect ir like the perfect you know impulse response for a, for a kind of cab emulation i find that that really is probably the most important part of a lot of guitar tones um and you know this is coming from someone who who i obviously cut my teeth like actually miking guitars up at one stage, which is funny. A lot of people don't even, a lot of people have come into the scene who have really never seen that done because obviously modelers are so ubiquitous. Um, 
but yeah, so I used to I used to do that. And I mean, in 2011, the technology was kind of close enough that I was comfortable doing it for like live performance for album layers, but I still had amps. And then somewhere in the mid kind of 2010s, I gradually sold all of that gear off and kind of devoted myself more fully to just, you know, the technology as it grew. But as far as I'm concerned, Neural DSP is kind of it. Like I, I really, you know, I'd, I'd love to have a quad back i actually have a there's a there's a 4x12 cab right here in front of me over here i haven't plugged into it for some time um i you know i I still love kind of the the feel of plugging into an amp and having that wonderful kind of holistic sense of like guitar you know amplifier speaker the way they talk to one another and so forth but the truth is that i i'm pretty satisfied kind of working with the other variables now saying that you know this modeler here my guitar all of the kind of um the the technology involved from the strings I'm choosing to the pickups to whatever else, those are variables enough for me. Um, And I think we're at a stage now where I don't feel like I'm compromising by doing that. Um, In fact, I'm kind of gaining quite a lot. So you can probably hear in my tone here, there is definitely a bit of tension to do with it. I still love amps. I do. No, I mean, um, but like the, uh, the, the, the thing is the analogy to what you're talking about with the eyes. I mean, my producer, Kevin Antriasian, does this. He, mm. he used to play guitar in the Dillinger Escape Plan, and now he's just doing a oh, production. Yeah. And he's got like a rack of like 10 incredible heads. And we turn all of them on sometimes, and we just switch the circuit. And like that is an amazing luxury to be able to have. Um, strangely, I think that, you know, the neural stuff, uh, I have one of the neural plugins. Um, I, I honestly love just jamming around and playing with it. I love just Mm. like the simplicity of it. I've never been able to, and you know, I don't mix an engineer. I've never been able to make it sound exactly the way I want, but you're giving me a lot Mm. of hope here. It definitely sounds like, uh, which, which, which plugin are you playing with? What? Which plugin are you playing with? I've got the Pliny one. Oh, the Pliny one's great, yeah. It, see, the Pliny one, I feel like it's got a very kind of distinct, well, to state the obvious, very distinct kind of Pliny character, you know? Like, he's he's got this kind of particular voicing that's quite idiosyncratic. Um, for me, so my, my kind of obsession and what I turn on whenever I play guitar, I'm very rarely actually playing through the quad cortex when I'm practicing. Fortin Cali is my absolute favorite. And it's that like, I really could cool. straight up just use it. Like, I, I, we're actually talking about this. We've got a forthcoming tour in September. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to do the whole tour without even the quad cortex. I think we're going to use a laptop and plugins for this tour. That Yeah, I know. I know. The look on your face is also the look on my face if you told me a year ago that I'd be doing that. But I love this plugin so much and I've got it so, you know, I've got it so dialed in to the point where I'm just so stoked with it. I People think are going to think you're that. homeless. <laughs> I know. <laughs> But but seriously, as far as I'm concerned, that's kind of where it's at, you know. I, I just I, I really love this stuff. Obviously, you've got to spend a lot of time with it and really get to know it. Like any piece of gear that becomes, you know, just a part of your musical voice. Um, but that's the one for me. The Fort and Cali is just I, I adore it. Like all all of neural stuff is fantastic. That's my desert island plugin. I mean, I don't know how I'm playing with it on a desert island without any power or whatever. But anyway, you get what I mean. Yeah, no, I mean, there's something very interesting about, like, the, there is a certain enthusiasm you're talking about this with that I feel uh, there's almost like this nomadic ethos to it. It's like you have less real estate with you on stage. There's less in your bag. You feel less mm. tied to everything. It's almost like well, you're... Let, let, let you me tell you this. Uh, th- so the, the the tour that we recently finished, we actually did... So this is... Um, we, we did it with Zach, our, our, our guitarist prior to Adrian. He came on as a session guitarist for this tour. Um, we all had a 
we all had our quad cortexes all sitting up the back next to our like you know in-ear monitor rack connected to midi via a laptop nothing in front of us at all just on our guitar wirelesses like roaming the stage and first the first show i think it was the first show was like in melbourne or something like that of this tour we all had a long guitar lead bringing our wireless receivers to the front of stage because we were all just terrified of the idea of not being tethered to anything at all and that gig went really well and we loved it following night it was just like you know what let's just keep this neat keep it up the back rest of the tour we did and it was just incredible like a revelation like we can climb up all over the stage go wherever we want we're tethered to nothing we've got little discrete kind of hidden like headstock tuners instead of you know needing to have the tuner directly in front of you i mean it's kind of it was kind of the inspiration for saying like you know maybe it's time to go to just using plugins rather than using the quad cortex at all travel even lighter save more money on luggage <laughs> you know it just yeah. becomes easier and easier that's great, man. Well, I'm, I'm glad that that worked out because it's something I think about all the time. Wireless definitely makes me nervous at times. It's terrifying. Um, and we've had issues over the years too. Um, so I'm going to ask you one more question here. I'm very, uh, very grateful for your time here. Um, here is maybe just kind of like a broad question. Maybe you have a couple different ideas, but I'm kind of curious what you think humans in general are after with art, what, what this whole thing is about. And uh, what kind of do you hope to achieve through the discipline of your creations? It's hmm. a really good question. I mean, it's uh, obviously there's a couple of avenues immediately that my mind goes to. Maybe I can try and tease them out. I don't know how linked any of this will actually feel. But um, I, I mean, speaking personally, I, I know that there's something that creating music kind of does or maybe occupies in my life that really I don't get from anything else. Um, for me, creating music is this weird kind of tension between um, emotionally exercising, you know, whatever it is that I'm feeling or exploring or, you know, whatever, and solving a puzzle. Those two things, uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's kind of like a battle between those two things at all times. I, I swap mindset from one to the other constantly, you know, sometimes many, many times per minute. Um, but obviously, either of those two things either of those two pursuits you can kind of find in a whole number of different things but if i'm sitting down and it's like it's music writing time and i've got something that's lighting a fire under me thematically or something that's inspired me or something that's just you know caught my interest or whatever to then be able to kind of put that down you know i'll obviously chuck into a daw as i'm kind of like demoing ideas or whatever else usually this by the way comes from some terrible voice memo i've sung into my phone or something like that and then the puzzle solving takes over. It's like, how do I create something out of this raw material, like this, you know, intuition driven idea that I really don't know where it came from that can then give me, you know, a piece of music that's tangible and coherent. So to me, like I, I love to be able to, I guess, have this kind of autonomous exploratory um, course set by one of those things that like, you know, that inspiration feeding into that kind of oversight, like those two, those two, um, those two intersecting concepts, which in the end give me an outcome that I can feel really, really proud of, unlike any other thing that I do. So whether that's like a kind of universal experience, I don't, th I, I don't know. In fact, I don't think so. You know, I know working with Jim over all of these years, he's someone who's almost entirely kind of instinctively driven, you know, he, isn't into the problem solving, he's into the emotional outpouring. And that works really well for me because I love solving the problems, you know what I mean? If he can give me something just 
that he has no idea what its context is, or it can be entirely abstract or entirely um, removed from any kind of like, you know, structural context. It's just a thing, just an idea. I can then take over in that, 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 that particular, you know, kind of um, oversight-based mindset and just put something together based around that. So to me, it's this kind of thrilling, like hurtling between these two minds over and over again until something comes out of it. And then as far as I'm concerned, the third part of, I guess, my own personal experience, like what, you know, what does art give me? There's nothing, there's really nothing I can think of, you know, besides those really key kind of like peak moments of my life, you know, like birth of my son, like, you know, marrying my wife, all of those kind of things. The idea of actually finishing a record and getting to listen back and being fairly sure, at least in that moment, that it's the greatest thing I can make, you know? So it's like those two, those two um, kind of um, intention projects eventually become something that sums up a particular moment in my, in my life, in my kind of psyche, you know, in my uh, outlook and whatever else that I can then go back to and say, well, this is truly a distillation of like who I was then, because I know I put those hours into it. You know, I went between those two mindsets. Now, again, I'm talking very subjectively here, you know, like your question was obviously framed a little more around like the larger project of art and what it does for the world. And that I'm kind of less sure about. I, I've, I've certainly had stronger opinions over that at different points in my life, but Right now, I feel like art is about the most kind of subjectively fulfilling element, um, at least in my own experience of it, that I can feel. And, you know, if it's the most subjectively fulfilling thing I can feel, I'm sure that a lot of other artists have a similar take on it. So maybe it's something that as a creator, it's an exorcist, it's a, a chance to solve something really interesting, and then it's a wonderful project that sums up who you are at a certain point in your life. Maybe the listener can grasp onto some of those elements too. And I've always had this um, kind of this burning idea that, you know, those hours that you while away on some small, seemingly insignificant element of a piece of art, maybe they're not consciously picked up by the listener, but I'm sure that, you know, that the sum of their parts means something. So maybe there is a relation to how. Um, this kind of feels subjectively as an artist and how it's kind of, you know, objectively um, um, situated in kind of the, 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 the global mind or, you know, people appreciating and listening to whatever art they listen and appreciate. Um, I wish I could be more profound than that, but it's like really the, the, the subjectivity for me is, is where it's at. I mean, you know, I do a lot, I, I, I got hobbies, I got other things I enjoy doing, but there really is nothing like creating music for that reason you know, for that kind of, that let's call it three-pronged kind of um, gratification that I get from creating music. That is a great answer, man. I, I think that covered a lot of it, especially the nature of kind of unconscious coherence with other human beings. Mm. It's clear that that is a huge part of music. Listen, man, uh, I really want to thank you for being here with me today. Um, I know it's uh, late your time. Um so, uh, you know, uh, for anyone listening, this is Sam Vallon of Caligula's Horse. Uh, we had a great conversation. I will be linking to everything that's relevant, and I gave you probably a preamble right before all of this. Um, do you have anything you want to say in closing? Do you want to tell anyone anything? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, look, <laughs> if you're a Caligula's Horse fan, you're listening to this, and you're impatiently wondering when the next album is coming, um, it's on its way. You know, we're, we're, we're working as hard on it as we can, and it's going to be... 
Um, if nothing else, you know, a reflection of the kind of experience that we've all had over this this COVID period. Um, and if it's if how I've just described our writing process is anything to go by, um, it's going to be something of a an, an exorcism for us um, for what this period has meant uh, meant to us. Hopefully, it can be that for some listeners as well. So know that it's coming. I guess is the message here. <laughs> okay, very good. <laughs> Um, well, uh, that's it. And we're signing off. Thank you for joining us for the modern mythos podcast.